Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. I have to let you know that the world's first living robots can now reproduce according to scientists. Well, hmm. I guess it was only a matter of time. I mean, I'm resigned <laughs> to it. Whatever. <laughs> okay. Well, whether or not you actually consider these to be robots is kind of a gray area, mm. but they're called xenobots. And the U.S. scientists who created the first living Robots say these life forms can now reproduce in a way we've never seen before in plants or animals. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but this is actually pretty amazing. So what they did is they took stem cells of the African clawed frog, which is known as Xenopus lavis. So they named them xenobots. And they're less than a millimeter wide. They're basically just tiny blobs. But they were first unveiled in 2020 after experiments showed that they could move, work together in groups, and self-heal. Wow. If you have the time, I highly recommend visiting this article because they've got some really high quality video where you can see what look like little fortune cookies spinning around in what looks like a little glass dish of sand, which are actually cells. And they're basically grouping and encouraging these other cells to develop. It's totally mind blowing. And so this is where we get into the question, is this really a robot or is it actually an organism? Because yeah. so far it sounds mostly organism to me. So this is where they're, this is the argument for it's actually a robot. It's because stem cells are unspecialized cells and they have the ability to develop into different cell types. Mm -hmm. But to make xenobots, the researchers scraped living stem cells from frog embryos and left them to incubate. And so here's the thesis from Josh Bongard, a computer science professor and robotics expert and lead author of the study. He says, most people think of robots as made of metals and ceramics, but it's not so much what a robot is made from, but what it does, which is act on its own on behalf of people. Hmm. So the researchers used artificial intelligence to test billions of body shapes to make the xenobots more effective at this type of replication, this kinetic replication. Hmm. And the supercomputer came up with a C shape that kind of looks like Pac-Man, like this little mm -hmm. fortune cookie, but kind of rounder. <laughs> the AI didn't program these machines. It shaped and sculpted and came up with this Pac-Man shape. And what they're saying is that the shape in essence is the program. The shape influences how the xenobots behave to mm. amplify this incredibly surprising process. And yes, while the prospect of self-replicating biotech could spark concern, and with good reason, the researchers said that the living machines were entirely contained in a lab and easily extinguished as they are biodegradable <laughs> and regulated by ethics experts. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the only robotic part of it is the fact that an AI told it what to turn into. But like if pretty much if the only definition is like serving humans, if I tell my dog to go fetch something and he does, does that make <laughs> him a robot because he's serving human <laughs> desires? Like, I don't know. I, yeah. It's less scary if you don't call them robots. And I guess that's part of the deal is they want you to read the article and say, oh, these are robots. But right. like, the idea of calling it a robot is it's right now obeying us. Mm -hmm. But if we have stem cells that can do their own thing 
even if we're nudging them in the right way, there's no telling whether it can do another thing we've not guessed. Sure. It's just a question of keeping that AI in check and not having it Uh tell them, hey, could you make yourself into a weapon Pac-Man shape? Great. Thanks. (laughs) That'd be awesome. Well, honestly, robots really don't know whether they're making weapons or not until we tell them they have and we've used it as such. So as ever, the key factor here is humanity. Right, right. We can rely on that. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from People.com and it's titled 24-Year-Old Researches Treatment for Her Own Crippling Disease. I'm in a Race Against Time. Wow. Yeah. That seems unfair. Like, shouldn't she have some help? Yeah. I mean, she does have some help, but uh, it's a complex story. Mm -hmm. So what Florida native Chandra Trantham dreams of most is running on a sandy beach into the ocean. She says, I see other people doing that, and it's like a movie moment. I really want to experience that. I know I did it when I was younger, but I wasn't appreciating what it felt like. I actually did have two of my friends hold my arms while I ran once, but it was really hard and it hurt. Unless a new treatment is found, the 24-year-old may never take that exhilarating plunge again. Trantham has Friedrich's ataxia, a rare genetic disease that is slowly robbing her of the ability to walk and talk and can also affect her heart. FA is caused by an inability in the body to make frataxin, a protein that is necessary for normal cell function. To date, there is no cure and no approved treatments, but she is working on one. Hmm. She's a fourth-year PhD candidate in genetics and genomics at the University of Florida Powell Gene Therapy Center. Trantham works in a lab where gene therapy for FA is being fine-tuned, and the great hope is that one infusion of a synthetic gene that makes for taxin will stop progression of the disease permanently. So Trantham has little feeling in her legs and was getting around at home using a walker or walking with her hands on the walls to steady herself until she fell and broke her arm. She had to use a wheelchair temporarily and still uses a wheelchair at home. When she goes out, she drives and then uses a walker or a scooter. She sometimes has halted speech, pausing and swallowing before she can get out her words. She's proactively learning how to use a hand control to drive so she can continue to get around when she can't use her feet. The gene therapy study for FA is expected to begin next year, and criteria for participants has not been yet established, but Trantham can't wait to apply. Mm. I'm not scared, I'm excited, she says. She has participated in four drug trials already. One of the experimental drugs she's been taking for two years, Omaviloxolone, seems to be slowing progression of her disease at least somewhat. She says, it's really cool being among the people who are developing the treatment for my disease and being able to be in the middle of what's happening instead of just looking from the outside. It's kind of crazy. I open the freezer and the gene therapy is right there. And she knows that she has to wait for study protocols and apply to participate like every other patient. I have to separate being a patient and a researcher doing what's important for research. So to be clear, she works at the place that is conducting the study Mm -hmm. and the thing that could potentially cure her, you know, she's like, well, I just work here. Right. (laughs) Like, I can't (laughs) just take it, you know. Boy, the temptation, though. Like, if it's right there and you, I mean, oh, that'd be tough. But I mean, as a fourth year PhD student, she probably knows these protocols. Sure. How meaningful has that got to be, even just showing up to work like that? Although I wish she didn't have to work. Well, yeah. yeah, but she she's got something driving her that possibly yeah. the other researchers don't have. I mean, she's yeah. very clearly going to be putting every effort she's got into this, which I think is yeah. good. I mean, it's a it's silver lining good. It's not good that she yeah, has there you this go. disease, but <laughs> yeah. it's good that somebody cares. 
I feel like they Amen. should they should approve her application. <laughs> She's oh, I'm it. sure she'd yeah. be first in line. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, not to get too dark, but can you imagine if they denied her application? How messed up would that be? Yeah, because the person uh, who denied her would probably be like her boss. Like it would have yeah. to be somebody she knows that was like, <laughs> nah, not you. Like, yeah, <laughs> pretty sure that won't happen. But uh, you know, here's hoping. <laughs> right. Uh, so she does say at the same time, being a patient actually motivates her to work faster mm. and to be more focused on getting the answers because she knows how it feels to not have any answers. Her symptoms started at age nine, which means her disease is more severe and progressing faster than it is for patients diagnosed later in life. Mm. The symptoms mounted in her preteen years. She couldn't walk on the balance beams at gymnastics summer camp, couldn't run a mile in PE class anymore, and finally couldn't walk in a straight line. She developed scoliosis, curvature of the spine, which required surgery, but when her parents were informed of her disease when she was 12 years old, they couldn't bear to tell her. Oh, wow. The diagnosis meant she would likely only live into her 20s or 30s. She says, They thought I would be happier not knowing my fate, but I was a pretty smart child and I knew there was something going on with me. So she got on the internet and did her own sleuthing. And she says, Yeah, I figured it out when I was 13. I had a name, wow. and I remember being at the doctor's and saw that name written down on my chart, so I knew that I'd figured it out. Wow. She says, when I was 16, my mom finally came to tell me, and I was like, I already know. <laughs> Both of her parents carry the genetic mutation, though they hadn't known it. They hadn't even heard of F.A. until Trantham was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Her sister is also a carrier, but doesn't have the disease. Trantham did not tell her friends for years and avoided school trips to amusement parks because it would involve hours of walking. Mm -hmm. She said, I just wouldn't go even though I wanted to. She broke her toe falling down the stairs and started her first week of high school on crutches. She says, my friends just assumed I was a really clumsy person, I guess. I would fall a lot. I always had some kind of brace on for something that I did. So she was determined to learn all she could about F.A., She attended a medical magnet high school in Jupiter, Florida, studied cellular and molecular biology at the University of South Florida. I wanted to understand on a cellular level what was happening with my disease. I could have done pre-med, but as a doctor, you just treat the problem when there's a treatment already. Mm -hmm. I knew that I had to study something so that I would figure out what the treatment will be. She earned a BS in three years while her disease progressed. Wow. She earned her degree in three years as her disease got worse. Yeah, she's clearly very smart. She figured herself out at 13. She's obviously ideally suited to do this if unfortunately afflicted by it. Yeah, and because the FA gene therapy research is far along already, her PhD focuses instead on gene therapy for an even rarer TECPR2 gene mutation that causes severe neurological problems in young children. Dr. Barry Byrne, director of the Powell Gene Therapy Center, says the work Trantham is doing on TCPR2 will inform gene therapy research for FA as well. Byrne, who first met Trantham when she was a study participant, gives her high marks for working tirelessly while fighting severe fatigue. He says, many patients just find their day exhausting, and then to come back the next day and do it all over again is something I think people in the group admire. Byrne noticed it was hard for Trantham to use the walker and still have her hands available to work, so he arranged for her to get a life glider, a walking aid that includes a strap around her waist so she can stand hands-free. He also gave her a lab bench at desk height so she could work while seated, and to solve the problem of lack of coordination in her hands and arms, he arranged for her to have a personal lab assistant who conducts the experiments that she designs. Nice. 
Still, he says, certainly without her movement problems, I think things would go faster for her, but she's been very patient. Yeah. Well, at least she's got a supportive group around her, too. That's awesome. Absolutely. I love what this article does, especially on the heels of International Day of Persons with Disabilities, which I think was December 3rd. You know, people that are living with disabilities still have so much to contribute to the Mm -hmm. world. And workplaces that offer these kinds of accommodations, so important. What Mm -hmm. a story. Yeah. And if she is allowed in the gene therapy study initially, or even at a later stage, she she says it won't interfere with her role as a researcher. Yeah, she'll be able to give really good feedback, if anything, because she knows what they're looking for from, you know, both the patient and researcher perspective. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And she ends by saying, I'm in their observational study, so there's a piece of my leg muscle in the freezer (laughs) where I work. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. And she ends with a giggle. So... Despite all of the challenges that she's going through, she's dealing with it with incredible perseverance and optimism as she goes. So it's really amazing and inspiring. Such perspective. I love this story. That's fantastic. Next link. Next link. All right. This next one comes from Slate, and it's called, Why are Duolingo's sentences so weird? (laughs) Are are you guys familiar with Duolingo? Yes. Mm -hmm. I've wondered this, too. So for those who don't know, it's a popular language learning app that features a cute little green owl named Duo. And Duo is a little weird. For one thing, the app has these daily notifications, which are cheerful, but also maybe kind of threatening. Like (laughs) One example might be, looks like you missed your Italian lesson again. Good luck talking your way out of this one. (laughs) So, of course, the Internet did what the Internet does, and there are tons of memes out there about the Duolingo owl threatening to kill your family if you don't do your French homework. And, you know, of course, those aren't real. They're just a humorous extrapolation on how these Mm -hmm. passive-aggressive notifications could be misinterpreted. But inside the app, it turns out, things start to get a lot stranger with no extrapolation necessary. Once you get past the first few lessons in any language, you start to get presented with sentences for you to translate, and they are very much not the standard, you know, where is the library kind of thing you might expect. Some examples include, and these are all real, the bride is a woman and the groom is a hedgehog. (laughs) The man eats ice cream with mustard. And I sell refrigerators. Do you understand? (laughs) Others can get a little too real. Like, he is handsome, but not a good person. And... I am eating bread and crying on the floor. (laughs) Listen, I could think of scenarios in which all of these could be extremely useful. (laughs) Right. You want to be able to say those things. So, you know, the author of this article reached out to Duolingo to find out exactly what's going on. And employee Cindy Blanco explained that it didn't always used to be this way. Each language program is run by a different team. And over time, a few of the teams started to put in some more specific sentences just to amuse themselves. The Norwegian and Swedish teams, for example, tended to include a lot of references to 90s grunge music just because there's only so many generic sentences you can come up with before you start to run out of ideas. Mm -hmm. But, of course, they're tracking everyone's data, and they found that not only did customers come back more often when they were served up funny or referential sentences, they also retained more of what they were being taught. Yep. Yeah. I was going to ask because, you know, if you tell me about a bride who is a human woman and a hedgehog, (laughs) I'm probably going to remember the word for hedgehog. Right, exactly. (laughs) And it turns out there is hard research supporting this idea, which scientists call reward prediction errors. Basically, if something surprises you, you're more likely to remember it. 
One of the big studies, for example, was done by Tom Vergutz at Ghent University in Belgium. And what they did in that study was they taught Dutch speakers Swahili through an online program that didn't actually give them any lessons. They just started in with multiple choice questions. Here's the word in Dutch. Pick the Swahili word that matches it. So the idea was that your first several rounds would just be random guesses. But over Mm -hmm. time, you might start to pick up the patterns and remember. Hmm. The key was that some of the participants were given two multiple choice options. Some were given four. And there was also a control group Hmm. which received only one choice, the correct one. So as you would expect, in the learning rounds, the folks with two choices got about 50% of them right just by chance. And the folks with four choices got about 25% right. But then afterward, they quizzed them orally about which words they could remember. And the folks who had four choices and got fewer right by random guessing ultimately remembered more words than the folks who had two choices and even the folks with one choice who were essentially just being given the answers. Huh. And they theorized that this was due to the surprise factor because someone with four random choices knows they're probably going to get it wrong. So they were surprised when they happened to get one right and it stuck with them. People with just two choices figured, yeah, it makes sense. It's a coin flip. So the surprise at getting one right was lessened. And the people with just one choice remembered the fewest of them all. So Vergutz didn't actually know that his research was being utilized by Duolingo. But he agrees that Duolingo's use of weird sentences would qualify as a type of weak prediction error and probably does help people retain the information better. But he also points out there is a limit. A wildly unpredictable sentence like the table walked through the blue truth wouldn't get the job done because it's too strange. You have to find that sweet spot of just weird Mm -hmm. enough to be funny but not alienate people. Hmm. So, yeah, it turns out if you have to translate, I am eating bread and crying on the floor, you're more (laughs) likely to remember all of those individual vocabulary words than you would if you just translated, I am eating bread in the kitchen. And, of course, from a corporate standpoint, people taking screenshots and talking about Duolingo's weird sentences online is another form of free advertising, right? (laughs) They don't care if you're making fun of them as long as you're talking about them and coming back for more. I mean, I've noticed that as I've gone through my own Duolingo, and I do feel like that has been correct for me, if only because like I found what I thought was some kind of, you know, platform error, and I could giggle at it. But there's still context that is like Mm -hmm. 80% familiar. Yeah, you're still learning for sure. And you're enjoying it and having more fun while you do it. So I mean, it might take a little bit of the edge off now knowing that they're doing it on purpose. Like, it feels like the surprise is lessened because now you're like, oh, well, that's not a weird sentence. Now I'm irritated. Well, I expected I don't know. a weird <laughs> sentence. In video games, sometimes Easter egg hunting is part of the side quest, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know they're there, but you still want them. That's true, for sure. Yeah, and the deeper you go, the more Easter eggs you get. So what better incentive is there to find your hedgehog? So, everybody get online and learn how to say hedgehog in every language. <laughs> <Wow>. Party trick. <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. From newatlas.com, I am going to save this title so I can pop quiz y'all. You ready? (laughs) Yeah. In 1945, a new invention that had helped to win the Second World War went on sale in the U.S. and Britain. It was first seen as an expensive novelty, but it soon went on to become not only a part of our everyday lives, but one that revolutionized how we communicate. Any guesses? Ah. Telegraph? All right, I won't hold you in suspense any longer. It's the ballpoint pen. Oh. And it helped win the war? Okay, Uh, tell me. (laughs) We'll get into it. I mean, it's time to praise the humble but mighty ballpoint pen. And this deceptively simple writing instrument has a big story behind it. 
So we know these pens by a lot of different names, but they're known mainly by two monikers. One is ballpoint pen, which is Mm -hmm. kind of the most accessible, and Biro, the name of the man who invented the first practical version. So before the Bureau, writing with ink hadn't really changed much since ancient times when people used to use goose quills cut into nibs with a slit in the tip. And a couple of hundred years ago, pens with steel nibs were introduced. And in the 19th century, we had fountain pens. But all of these pens kind of sucked, okay? (laughs) Fountain Mm -hmm. pens were also super expensive. Plus, there were a lot of materials that fountain pens couldn't write on at all. And so the idea of replacing the nib with a little metal ball rolling in a socket is not particularly new. In 1888, the American John Loud patented a crude ballpoint pen that could write on leather, wood, and coarse wrapping paper. However, it didn't work very well, so it didn't sell, and the patents lapsed. And over the years, there were a lot of other attempts to produce a ballpoint pen, but they were super crude, they could barely scribble a legible word, or they leaked like crazy when they didn't clog. It was just besieged by problems. But then, in the 1930s, Laszlo Biro came along. And when he wasn't working as a newspaper editor in his native Hungary, he was also a hypnotist, a race car driver, and a <laughs> surrealist painter. Kind of All a right. renaissance wow. man. I mean, not just a renaissance man. That's like threading the needle of oh, weird yeah, things right. that you can do right. all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk only wish they could. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, as a journalist, he loved the ink that they used to publish his newspaper, which dried almost instantly and didn't smudge. So he enlisted the aid of his brother, who was a dentist and had a background in chemistry. And he set out to create a new ballpoint pen design based on viscous ink, similar to newsprint. Hmm. After a lot of false starts and setbacks, both technical and financial, the final result was a pen with a steel ball in a socket and an ink barrel filled with an ink paste that did not evaporate like conventional ink. Okay, so we had a lot of talk about the World War. That was some big talk. How does this measure up to it? Okay. Bureau's work came in a time of political turmoil in the days before the outbreak of the Second World War. The Hungarian government was growing openly fascist, and as Jews, Biro's family was increasingly threatened. But a chance meeting at a hotel with the then-president of Argentina, Agustin Pedro Justo, led to an invitation to set up shop in Argentina. But marketing the new pen, now called the Biro, was not easy. The invention ended up muddled in a number of international patents and licensing agreements in different companies and individuals in various countries, so it looked like it would never really hit that mass market saturation. But the war changed everything when the new pen came to the attention of the British Aircraft Production, which ordered 30,000 units of this Bureau pen for the RAF, whose pilots had to write in their logs, they had to mark charts, they had to make calculations while in flight. So they needed a pen that wouldn't leak and could be handled as casually as a pencil. Meanwhile, other companies became interested and found ways around his patents by reverse engineering. But unfortunately, all of the pens had one thing in common. They were still super pricey. So as a result, the small market was soon saturated and a lot of these, you know, startup companies folded. But... In the 1950s, maybe this name will ring a bell, the French entrepreneur Marcel Bick Mm. licensed the bureau design and improved upon it by making it super cheap to make. Mm -hmm. This became the famous Bick Crystal, also known as the Bick Pen, which I know you can see in your mind right now. It's a simple ballpoint fixed to a Mm -hmm. transparent plastic reservoir with that little hole partway down to equalize the air pressure. This quickly became the world's best-selling pen and was soon followed by many imitators that sold in the billions. 
So, you know, before the ballpoint pen came around, writing was a ritual. If you go into any hotel over a century old that hasn't been super renovated, you'll probably find writing desks in the lobby and even in the rooms for the guests. And if you wanted to write before the ballpoint pen, you didn't just pull your pen out of your pocket and start scribbling. You'd have to start with a firm, flat surface. You'd have to get the right grade of paper, a serviceable pen, pen wipes to clean the nibs, Mm -hmm. an inkwell, blotting paper, a blotter, and gum Arabic sand to sop up excess ink. And in addition, writing with them required a lot of concentration. Writing in cursive was the way to keep the nib against the paper and lift it as little as possible. Mm -hmm. And now you're having conversations about whether even to teach cursive anymore. Yeah, my kids did not learn cursive in school at all. They were just like, write the way you want to write. And frankly, we're not even going to do a lot of writing work because you're all going to be typing. Like they also, they, they didn't even teach them typing because the kids come in at five already having used keyboards for four years. And yeah. they don't they don't teach it. They just say, yeah, everybody can type. It's fine. I'm sure there are children today who can type faster on an iPhone than I can on a full pretty keyboard, mm-hmm. which is terrifying to yeah. think about. <laughs> but regardless, you know, the ballpoint pen revolutionized the way we write. Pause and reflect on the marvel of the ballpoint pen. <laughs> I guess I can't be bitter now about all the ballpoint pens in my purse that don't work, right? I have to like, honor them. I can't be like, you piece of crap. Ugh, they never work. <laughs> it's well, my fault. Yeah, you know, they could uh, be fountain pens. That's you right. Know, you could just have ink all down there. That's right. I need <laughs> to have more go. gratitude. <laughs> <laughs> Do the Conmarie thing where you can honor it, thank it for its service, and let it go. Yeah, I just throw them all away. That's what I need to do. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from gizmodo.com. It's titled, A Man Grew a Tooth in His Nose. Oh, no, thank you. Okay. Yep. So (laughs) a man's (laughs) a man's year of trouble breathing through his nose turned out to have a much stranger explanation than anyone could have imagined. Oh god. His doctors, in a paper out this week, described finding a tooth poking through his nasal cavity. The study on the nose tooth was published in the New England <laughs> Journal of Medicine. According I'm sorry, to report, I'm sorry, we've heard of eye teeth, but right, this is right. the first time I've ever nose heard nose tooth, and I love yeah. it. Oh, but I hate it, but please go on. Yeah, uh, according to the report, a 38-year-old man had visited an ear, nose, throat clinic at Mount Sinai in New York with complaints of difficulty breathing through his right nostril, a problem that had been going on for several years at that point. Physical examination revealed a deviated septum, which is when the cartilage in the middle that separates one nostril from the other, which can get displaced for various reasons, does get displaced, along with some kind of bony obstruction and a two-centimeter-long tear towards the back of the septum. Mm. When they looked closer using a rhinoscope, which is basically a camera attached to a tube, they found a hard, non-tender white mass sticking out of the floor of the nostril. And... Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I have to like commend the fact that at least our healthcare system has a medical specialist uniquely designed to address this as mm-hmm. an ear, nose, throat specialist. Yep. That's right. He's got E&T. throat and nose. He knows it. No, God. Yeah. He knows it. I mean, <laughs> I had to go to an ENT one time when I got a very small popcorn kernel stuck <laughs> in my tonsils. Oh no! And that was a very frustrating experience 
Um, it wasn't a tooth, to though, Way. <laughs> it was not a tooth, thankfully. See, but, yeah, okay, so, be... but was this a tooth that totally generated in his nostril, or was it a tooth that just started growing the wrong direction? Like, did it just come up instead of going down? That is a good question. It's not super clear, but when they ran a CT scan, they did identify what the mass was. I, I'm actually going to click, oh, God, I shouldn't have clicked. <laughs> you can see okay it does look like it grew upwards out of his mouth area because there's an x-ray and it's just going the wrong direction oh that's rough yeah oh thank you for doing the work way and actually viewing the image because yeah. <laughs> that was they threatened me with that when i had my wisdom teeth out they told me that my top wisdom teeth were pointed in the wrong direction. And that was part of the explanation of why I had to have them removed, because they were like, if these things keep growing, they could go up into your nasal cavity. And I was oh. always like, I mean, you would think the pain and you would think you would get to it a long time before it actually erupted through your nose. Like, I feel like yeah. this guy was one of those guys who was like, nah, I don't need to go see a doctor, like way longer than he should have been. <laughs> Aren't they all? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the doctors don't offer an explanation as to how this man's stray tooth formed, but whatever the case, genetics are considered a risk factor for the condition. Mm -hmm. Ectopic teeth are thought to be rare, occurring in anywhere from 0.1 to 1% of the population, which in my opinion, is still way too high. Right, but, that's too yep. many. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but most of the time, the unusual teeth don't stray too far from their usual home and aren't hard to miss. That said, there have been a few other case reports of nose teeth reported by doctors before. <laughs> Ectopic teeth don't always need to be treated, since some might develop normally following their initial erratic eruption. Depending on their position, they can be adjusted into their rightful place with braces mm -hmm. or other dental procedures. Braces in the throat! Yeah. <laughs> but in this case, the doctors opted for a simple removal through surgery. That's right. And maybe now, he'll occasionally go to the dentist and get x-rays. Because that's the thing. They he absolutely would have seen this on his x-rays if he had ever been x-rayed at the That's dentist. That's true. So I, you yeah. know what? I was feeling bad for him. Not anymore. I'm like, you should have gone to the doctor. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, Chris K from Insider.com has a fascinating article for us called The Weirdest Book in the World Just Turned 40. We Talked to Its Creator. Mm. And when I read the title, I admit I was skeptical. I mean, there's a lot of weird books in the world. Is this one really the weirdest? But mm -hmm. after reading it and seeing all the pages from this book that they reprinted in the article, I've got to say I'm inclined to agree. Mm. The book is called The Codex Serafinianus, and it was written by an Italian artist named Luigi Serafini. Initially, he wanted to have no mention of his name on it at all because he wanted it to look entirely like an encyclopedia from another world. But his publisher Ooh. talked him into calling it Codex Seraphinianus as a sort of Latin-esque nod to his name without actually including it on there. As for what exactly an alien encyclopedia looks like, the article calls it, quote, a cross between a field guide to alien flora and fauna and an assembly manual for bizarre biomechanical devices. Ooh. Yeah, it's kind of like Dr. Seuss, but more technical. Like, it's full of these detailed and colorful illustrations, but it's also full of writing in this beautiful handwritten script that very clearly looks like a language, but isn't. It's not a code. It doesn't actually mean anything. It's just a work of art that's more than 300 pages long and is surprisingly compelling. Wow. So Serafini is 72 now. He started making the Codex in the early 1970s, quote, very possibly under the influence of psychedelics. Mm. He said, ever since he was a child, drawing was like a disease for him, and his parents were always <laughs> worried 
because he would rather draw than play with friends. And in fact, he's still adding pages to this day. When the book was first published in 1981, it was largely because his publisher told him he had to stop. But he kept going in the background. And every time there's a new edition, they add a few of the new drawings. Wow. And while the book never became a bestseller and was actually out of print for a long time, it did gain a dedicated cult following, especially among academics from the philosophy and linguistics worlds. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Douglas Hofstadter, who studies human consciousness in conjunction with math and physics at Indiana University, is one of those superfans. He says he first stumbled upon a copy of the book in a small Parisian bookshop in 1983, and he says he spent more than an hour staring at the pages before he finally cracked and bought the book for its listed price (laughs) Of $200, which would equate to around $1,000 today. Yeah. He says, never once since then have I regretted that impetuous but irresistible decision. And he believes that Luigi Serafini belongs among the ranks of Hieronymus Bosch, Salvador Dali, Rene Magritte, and M.C. Escher. (gasps) Wow. Wow. Yeah. And it it truly is. They have like a dozen of the pages from this book in the article. And it's fascinating. It really is so detailed and so cool. And you look at 12 of them going like, oh, man, he's done all these. And you're like, no, he's done more than 300 others. Like every page is unique. It's crazy. So as for the language, Serafini never gave his made up language an official name. But he says he hears it as music rather than vocalizations. He says he listened to Mozart's The Magic Flute on repeat while he was writing the original batch of drawings. And the two are inextricably linked in his mind. This is like a thesis of synesthesia or something. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. It really does look like it. And there are also quite a few people who have gotten tattoos of various drawings in the Codex. And Serafini says that he'd like to get all of those people together in a room one day so they could act as a living Codex. He (gasps) says, life and Codex maybe are the same for me. Wow. Like the title says, this year is the 40th anniversary of the original book, and they have indeed released a new edition with 15 new pages on top of all the ones that have been added in previous editions. And if you're feeling flush with cash, you can buy yourself a copy from the Italian publisher for $150. Honestly, bargain. Yeah, that's a bargain. It's really cool. Like there's a page on fruits and vegetables where like there's a keg tapped into a potato and there's stuff coming out. And then there's like a biological drawing of what looks like a bell pepper. But on the inside, there's stuff going on, like living. Wow. Yeah, it's very, very cool. And I agree that he was probably on drugs when he drew it. But (laughs) (laughs) clearly inspired, though, I love the I mean, you hear from writers a lot who talk about the importance of other art forms to kind of, Mm -hmm. I don't know, feel the progression of their flow, right? Like sometimes it's music. Sometimes I've heard some authors or even actors get into like perfumes to Mm -hmm. get into character or create an atmosphere so they can have more of a, a sensory experience in forming the work that they do. I, yeah. I've got to get my hands on this. I'm I'm putting it on my Christmas wish list right now. <laughs> yeah, is it for somebody where you're like, this person has everything, I don't know what to get them. This is definitely a unique and just fascinating thing that, you know, you put it on your coffee table and it's a guaranteed conversation starter forever. Or your guests will all want to look at the book and not talk to you, so maybe not. But <laughs> <laughs> next link. Next link. All right. Good news, everyone. Gizmodo is reporting that Canada's maple syrup cartel would release (laughs) about 50% of its sugary reserves amid a shortfall. I actually saw a documentary about this. It is a big issue. It is a big issue. Yeah. (laughs) And we say cartel, but it's a cartel. I was going to say the word cartel is very disturbing to me. Like, are there guys with guns protecting the maple syrup barrels? 
Well, okay, we have definitely covered maple syrup theft in this mm. very podcast before. So we know that this is tightly controlled, extremely valuable, and fairly rare if you think about it. Because the Quebec maple syrup producers, this official name for the cartel, is responsible for over 70% of the world's maple syrup output. Wow. They are commonly referred to as the OPEC of maple syrup, and they did announce <laughs> that in recent days it would release about 22.6 million kilos of syrup from its strategic reserve following a shortfall in this year's expected production and increased demand overseas. Hmm. The 50 million pounds of syrup the group is draining represents about half of its stockpile. This is the largest amount of syrup the Maple Cartel has released since 2008 and 2009 when they were forced to completely empty the reserve. And they're mm. thinking that production this year was affected by a warmer and shorter spring harvest season. Maple syrup production is super reliant on the weather. Mm. Trees have to be a certain age, usually around 30 or 40 years old. So this wow. is a real long-term investment and production cycle. And the harvest season typically runs from late February to the end of April, but it was cut short this year because of unseasonably warm weather, mm. which gives you yet one more reason to care about the fate of the planet and take action where you can. Maple <laughs> syrup and coffee, guys. We got to have it. That's right. You don't care if we lose the planet, but if you lose your sugar on the way there, man. Geez, uh, yeah. But not this year. Hey, no, hey! no we got to reserve. And, and, you know, if we got half of it this year, we get half of it next year. After that, you know, who's to even say that we'll have a functioning society? So whatever. Like, <laughs> we'll yeah. look to the cartel for answers as we have for many years. That's right. <laughs> well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include the Japanese fishing village that vanished from Los Angeles, researchers defeat randomness to create ideal code, and hot news from two billion years ago, plankton actually moved mountains. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 